Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is audio preservation engineer Dan Johnson. First of all, what is the most popular music in the world? Well, the IFPI, which is the International Federation of the Phonograph Industry, basically it's the world organization for the music industry. They do a survey every year, study, to find out pretty much how consumers all over the world consume music. And one of the interesting aspects is the world's favorite music genres. This always surprises me. I shouldn't be surprised by now, but it always does. So let's take a look at them. First of all, I think one of the interesting things here is, on average, consumers spend 17.8 hours a week listening to music. That's almost 18 hours a week, or that's more than two hours a day. That's quite a lot of time spent just listening to music. Now, obviously, this skews young So the younger you are, the more likely you are to spend time listening to music than when you get older. But nonetheless, this is across all demographics, so there's not one demographic or age group that's singled out here. So here we go. Let's look at the world's favorite music genres, and this is the percentage of consumers across 18 countries. So the number one genre of music listened to by 64% of music listeners, is pop. Yeah, that surprises me because we've seen other surveys that have indicated that's a whole lot less than it is here. What's the second one? Well, again, this kind of violates what you see in other studies, but I'm not surprised. It's rock at 57%. The third most popular music genre is dance, electronic, house. And that's way down at 32%. That's way down from the top two anyway. The fourth is soundtracks at 30%, and that's sort of a surprise. I wouldn't have thought that soundtracks would have been that high. Number five is hip-hop and rap at 26%. This surprises me. I would have expected it to be higher. The next is singer-songwriter at 24%. Again, this seems to be something that I wouldn't have expected. The next one is classical and opera at 24%. Once again, I would have thought this would have been a little further down the list. Next comes R&B at 23%. Would have expected to be higher. Soul and blues at 22%. And finally, coming up in the rear here is metal at 19%. I'm actually kind of surprised it's that high. And this just goes to show you that even though what you hear on the radio or what may seem to be really high on the various playlists looks like one genre of music, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what everybody's listening to. And we can see that here as, uh, for instance, I wouldn't have expected soundtracks to be that high. I wouldn't have expected rock and metal to be that high. So it just goes to show you, you can never tell here, or at least sometimes... Again, what's the top 10 or top 20 or top 50 doesn't really tell you everything that you need to know about how most humans consume music. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion on your songs and mixes as a member of my new Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com 
To learn more. Now, I was reading an article recently, and it was talking about the effects that change music. So I thought I'd give you the top five here, or at least what I think is the top five. What's surprising here is the fact that these are fairly old and may not be relevant today, and yet some of them are. So I think the most important development when it comes to effects, we're talking about outboard effects, came in 1957 with the EMT 140 plate reverb. Why is that? Well, prior to that, we were using acoustic chambers. An acoustic chamber is basically a big tiled room, like a big bathroom with a speaker in one end and microphones in the other. And that takes up a lot of real estate and isn't very portable. So when the EMT 140 came along, this was now the first time that artificial reverb could actually be made in in a rather portable space. Now, portable is a misnomer here because, in fact, these things were big. They're a 8 by 4 by one solid metal plate, and it weighs about 600 pounds. So usually once you set them down, you're not going to be moving them too much. So that brings us to number two, and that's in 1978, the Lexicon 224. Now, the Lexicon 224 was really the first widely purchased digital reverb, and it now made the reverb effect available to just about anybody with the studio, even if you didn't have enough space to put your own chamber in, or you didn't have enough space even to install a plate or two. Now you can get not only just a plate sound or chamber sound, you can get all of those plus hall plus room and everything else with a lot of variations. And this kind of blew the doors off of the whole idea of what reverb should sound like and what reverb can really do for us and how we can apply it to our mixes. So this set off the modern era of digital reverbs, the Lexicon 224. The other thing is this wasn't the very first digital reverb. That came from EMT again with their EMT 250. Now the EMT 250 was fairly expensive, coming in somewhere around fifteen or sixteen thousand dollars, while the Lexicon 224 was seventy five hundred. So it's half the price. So of course that's why it was a big, big hit in studios everywhere. Number three came in nineteen seventy, and this was from Eventide. And Eventide came up with something called the Instant Phaser. Why was this important? This was the very first modulation device. Now, up until this point, the only way that you can get any kind of modulation was with the very intricate tape setup. And that was flanging. And of course, this was a big deal for the Beatles and done at Abbey Road. But not everyone can afford the multiple tape machines and the real pain in setting everything up. So even though the instant phaser did not give you that exact sound, it gave you something that you can rack mount that you can get a very interesting sound that was different from delay and different from reverb. So that really opened up the door. It was the very first modulation device, which brings us to 1971, again with Eventide, and this is with their DDL1745 digital delay. It doesn't seem like such a big deal today, but it was back then. The reason why the only way you could get delay was using a tape machine. And it was tape delay that you had. And of course, there wasn't a whole lot of variation that you had. And also, you always had to worry about delay tape and it running out. So there was always an assistant looking after your delay machines. 
Now here we go then with another rack-mounted device that gave you digital delay. It wasn't much. It was 200 milliseconds, but you could get it in two millisecond steps. And of course, you could get anything that precise with tape. So this was the DDL1745. And again, it opened up the door for digital delays. And now every workstation has a delay in it. We don't even think twice about it, but it was a really big deal back in 1971. Which brings us to number five. And once again, it's Eventide. Now, if you don't know the history of Eventide, you might be surprised that they were so innovative at the time. And they're certainly innovative today, that's for sure. They make wonderful plugins and wonderful hardware devices. But that being said, they were certainly on the cutting edge way back when. In 1974, Eventide came out with the H910 Harmonizer. Harmonizer was a big deal because the idea was now you could do harmonizing without doing an extra vocal. Now, it didn't work out that way, really, because what ended up happening was the harmonizer just didn't sound good as you began to raise or lower the pitch. And the more you did it, the worse it sounded. So this is something, of course, we don't have a problem with today because we figured out how to do that with great many plugins. Back then, it was a big deal. So even though it had a two-octave range and about 112 milliseconds of delay, there was a lot of very innovative people that began to think, how can I use this harmonizer and make it do something it wasn't really intended to, but make it work really well? And of course, it became used as a thickening device on guitar and snare and you name it. This was used on vocals, on background vocals. The big trick was to get two H910s and slightly detune one up and one down, and that would give your voice or background vocals a really big thick sound and it's something that we still use today although we're using harmonizer plugins to do the same thing but that's basically it now if you want to hear what this sounded like on snare drum just go listen to back in black acdc's back in black and of course that's such a revered album but listen closely to the snare drum that's an h910 harmonizer on it used in thickening mode so there we go that's my five effects that changed music these are hardware effects. They're mostly from the 70s, but they've been widely used since they've been introduced and still widely used in plug-in form today. My guest today is Dan Johnson, who started his career as an engineer at Capitol Studios in Ocean Way and is now the chief preservation engineer at United Archiving. Dan has transferred over 600 albums and 3,000 tapes ranging from monoacetate to 48-track digital, including priceless masters from high-profile legacy artists like Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, Eagles, Prince, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Van Halen, Rod Stewart, and Otis Redding. In his time as an archival engineer, he's worked on some of the world's best-selling albums, including The Doors' Soft Parade, John Coltrane's Giant Steps, and Led Zeppelin One. In the interview, we spoke about the gear required for archiving and the long search to find it, his method for baking tapes, and why archiving digital masters may be even more difficult than analog masters. We spoke via phone from a studio in United Recording Studios. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the business? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, the engineering in general or archiving specifically? Well, let's start with engineering in general. Okay. Um, I Let's see. Um, I'm originally from Maryland. And I really wanted to be a session guitar player. And uh, so I did some sessions in Maryland and I figured, ah, I don't think I'm going to, you know, 
I don't think I'm going to make a lot of money as a session guitar player in Maryland. And uh, so I noticed the guys behind the glass and it was like, huh, oh, that looks pretty fun. So I bought a four track uh, cassette recorder, Porta Studio, and uh, really got into it and enjoyed it. And I said, oh, I, th- I think I, I think I really like engineering. So then I went to the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences in Tempe, Arizona, and uh, went to school for it. And they sent me to uh, to Ocean Way for my internship, which was back in 1998. And um, and 20 years later, I'm I'm still I'm still in the building. I've I've been other places since I, after after my stint at Ocean Way for a few years. Uh, I went over to Capitol. <clears throat> And I worked at Capitol for several years. And uh, then I went freelance. And that's how I got into archiving. And it was purely on accident. Well, okay. How did that work then? Well, um, I, I was doing the, the freelance hustle, uh, you know, trying to find gigs. And, and uh, a buddy of mine called me and said, hey, I know a guy uh, who does archiving for Warner Brothers. And he needs somebody to work part-time. Uh, are you interested? And I was like, sure. You know, I hadn't seen a tape machine in 10 years, but I was like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can get back on the horse and figure it out. And so I went down and did an interview and got hired and started doing archiving and fell in love with it. I, like I said, I didn't even know it was a thing. Um, and I just, I really, I just really enjoyed going through old tapes and listening to stuff that people hadn't heard or, some people have never heard since it was recorded. And I was like, Oh, I, th- I, I think I found my niche in the industry. Like this is, this is really for me. Okay. You, you just opened up a can of worms here for me. Oh no. <laughs> well, no, in a good way, you mentioned things that people have maybe never heard since they were initially recorded. Can you name one of those instances? Oh, there uh, there's tons of them. Um, uh, I've, uh, I've, done the uh the outtakes to to john coltrane's giant steps which you you hear uh tommy dowd uh get on the talk back and go okay uh everybody ready giant steps take one and then they go into it and then somebody messes up and then you hear john coltrane oh no no is supposed to be an f sharp here and say that and then okay you know and they kind of figure it out and then you hear tommy dowd go okay everybody ready Uh, giant steps take two and that that's stuff that nobody's ever heard before. You know, everybody's heard giant steps, but nobody's heard the in-between stuff where, okay, somebody messed up and they, they have to, the, to restart everything. And that's, that's where, all, for me, that's where the magic lies. It really does. Yeah. I didn't even realize that Tommy Dow did that. Yeah, it was done. Uh, Tommy Dow did Atlantic studios. Uh, I think it was May 1st, 1959 in New York. Very cool. Okay, you just named one. Was there one in particular that really jumped out to you that, that was like, wow, th- this is just absolute magic? I guess that one was because it's uh, the first thing that came up, but was there anything else? Oh, the, yeah. The, well, there's been tons of them. Um, the, the one that really stands out, though, is I got a call from Jack Douglas, um, and he was like, uh, hey, I have a cassette tape that I want you to transfer. Can you, can you burn a CD? For me, I was like, sure, you know, bring it over and, and we'll take care of it for you. So Jack comes over, hands me the cassette, didn't tell me what was on it. And so I read the label on the, on the cassette and almost died. It was, uh, it just had the word John Lennon demos. Uh. 
And, <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I put it in the cassette deck and Jack took a seat next to me and we hit play and it was John Lennon recorded on a boom box. Actually it was recorded on two boom boxes. He multi-tracked the thing, <laughs> um, in the Bahamas. Um, and, uh, and Jack, and Jack started telling me the story about how John got out of music for five years to raise his son, Sean and a friend, he, he was, you know, he got, he kind of got bored and a friend of his was like, Hey, we're going to sail from like Rhode Island to the Bahamas. And so do you want to come with us? And John was like, yeah, of course I'd love to. Uh, apparently John never been sailing before. Uh, they hit some rough patches of water. Everybody got sick except for John. So he had to man the helm. And on the way down there, they almost died a few times. Um, and then they finally reached the Bahamas and John kind kind of had this epiphany of like, Oh, I need to start writing music again. I need to start doing something with my life. Um, you know, and, and start writing songs. And so he got two boom boxes and I guess there was a piano and a guitar and he sat there and multi-tracked and wrote these songs and that would later become the double fantasy album. Wow. And this, this was the tape that he sent to Jack Douglas from the Bahamas and with a letter uh, with it that read like, you know, Hey Jack, I don't know if there's anything worth worthwhile on this tape. Um, When I get back, we'll talk about it. And if there is, then maybe we'll put something out. And, and it was the first time that any of these songs had been written or recorded. And it was, it was amazing. That's very cool. Jack is a great storyteller as well. I mean, he he told me a number of, session stories of john and yoko that were hilarious first of all they're, they're always funny yeah. <laughs> coming from jack but insightful as well Oh yeah i love jack yeah definitely yeah and that was a great part about doing it was that jack was sitting next to me and so he was telling me about his friend about john and about the sessions and about you know what john was like and you know it, it, you you get a lot just from listening to the to the media just you know from listening to the tapes or the cassettes or the dats or whatever you know you can kind of you can pretend like you're there like a fly on the wall but to actually have somebody that was there and just kind of flesh it out for you and tell you oh yeah this is this song and this is what we did with it and that that took it to a whole nother level and that was probably one of the best archiving experiences i've ever had do you often have people with you when you're doing what you do? Uh, usually not. Um, usually it's a lot of people get bored. There's a lot of calibrating, a lot of paperwork, a lot of scanning and that kind of thing. So um, usually people just send the tapes and just say, you know, uh, give me a call when it's done and I'll come pick it up. And I, and that that's usually better anyway, just because I always feel weird. Like, you know, oh, I like I need to entertain somebody while I'm, while I'm doing the job. So it kind of works out for, for everybody. Well, let's talk about the process of archiving. So what happens? Um, well, I, I receive the tapes. Um, first thing I do is go through the tapes and check out their condition. Um, and also make sure that there's uh, documentation with them as far as track sheets or tape box labels. Uh, a lot of times we get mystery boxes, which are just a brown box with with no notes, no, no writing, nothing. And then you have to play detective and figure out exactly what the tape speed is, how many tracks is it, uh, if there's Dolby, if there's not Dolby, et cetera. So, so I have to make sure that, you know, I know what I'm dealing with. 
And then I check the tapes, uh, see if there's any damage to them, see if there's any mold buildup, any kind of debris or dirt. I had one tape that had a mummified moth, <laughs> a couple wines inside the tape. Uh, it was uh, the, uh, I, was, I was doing the Yes catalog, and it was uh, Tales of Topographic Oceans. Huh. And I'd heard that Chris Squire had kept the tapes in his garage and, you know, just for years and until they finally gave him the Warner Brothers. And it came to me, uh, I, don't, I don't even know if it had a box. I think it was just in a generic box. And, uh, and it was just covered in dirt. And it had about an inch of dirt and a mummified moth in it. And I was like, oh, I guess the story was true that Chris actually did have it in his garage. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you get weird stuff like that. Um, you get, uh, I, I, I get a lot of mold, a lot of tapes that have been in somebody's wet basement or they had a flood or it's been in the attic and there was a hole in the roof, that kind of thing. Uh, so every time we get mold, uh, we have to take a lot of precautions um, as far as um, doing the, the mold remediation on it. So we have a room with a high-powered exhaust fan, uh, a lot of respirators, and a lot of uh, nitrile gloves. And we just take our time and completely clean the tape and get rid of all the mold spores. So that's a process unto itself. Um, and then I check for uh, if the tape needs to be baked. Um, there's an easy method is called the Q-tip method where you take a, a Q-tip and slow wind the tape and hold the Q-tip on the oxide part of the tape. And if you, it, you only do it for a few seconds. And if you have any kind of debris on the Q-tip, then that usually tells you that the tape needs to be baked. Mm. Anytime we get Ampex 456, I automatically put it in the oven. It's, it's just one of those formulations that consistently has sticky shed syndrome and just it, it always needs to bake. I don't think I've ever come across a real 456 that, uh, that hasn't had to bake. So it's, it's just really uh, susceptible to sticky shed. Wow. And as far as baking goes, uh, do it in a food dehydrator at 125 for about 12 hours. Um, I've heard all tales of people putting tapes in microwaves and and their ovens at home at 375 and, oh just all this crazy stuff. Uh, that's a good way to destroy your tape. <laughs> it's, I, I've heard people putting tapes in the dash on the dashboard of their car on a hot day in a parking lot <laughs> to bake them, which is absurd. Like that you need a controlled environment. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to, to suck the moisture out of the tape that has accumulated over the years that has made it sticky. Um, so the best way to do it is a food dehydrator and do it low and slow 12 hours, 125 degrees, and then you have to let it rest for 12 hours uh, and let the binder reset. So that's usually the best way to go. Okay, from there then, what happens? Okay, so uh, after we're done doing all that and the baking, then it's actually safe to rewind the tape uh, and see what's on the tape. Um, and also that's why I check for sticky splices, dried leader joints, that kind of thing, uh, and do repairs as I go along. Uh, if the tape has tones, which is about 50-50, which is awesome when it has, when it has tones. Uh, then we do a machine calibration. Uh, we, we align the ATR, the Studer. Um, if it doesn't have tones, then we use a, a house MRL. Uh, we have a, a plus three MRL that we, you know, if, if, the, if there's markings on the tape box that's a plus six alignment, then we cal it to plus six. And if there's Dolby uh, and no tones, then... What our policy is, is we do a run with no Dolby decoding 
just so you have a, a, just a raw track because Dolby is very level dependent. So, uh, and then we do a best guess uh, from what we know of the tape and from the documentation of what the, what the actual Dolby alignment level is. And we'll, we'll run a second pass with Dolby decoding with the best guess. Um, but that's, you have to have the safety pass. Um, otherwise, since you're making a guesstimate, it might be completely off from what they originally did. Uh, so that's why it's always important to get the tones if they're available. And if not, um, make a second pass with, uh, without Dolby encode or decoding. So, um, yeah, so we do the alignment. Um, if there's, if there's noise reduction, then we align the noise reduction units and then we do the transfer. Uh, we do documentation on everything from, uh, the original tape to how it was transferred. And, uh, we also scan all the tape boxes and every note, every recall sheet, every track sheet, lyric sheet, what, anything that's in the box, we, we also scan and that becomes part of the final archive. And then that gets delivered to the client on whatever medium they, they want to store it on. So sometimes they'll bring a hard drive. Uh, sometimes they'll have me Dropbox it to them or they'll give me an FTP server to send it to them. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much the entire process. So what's the resolution that you're digitizing it to? Um, with analog tape, we always digitize at the highest, which is 192.24 at this time. Um, with the digital tapes, it's whatever the native resolution is. So if I have a 3348 tape that's at 44.1 16-bit, then it goes a straight one-to-one -one digital transfer uh, into Pro Tools and is captured at 44.1 16-bit. Uh, we don't go through the converters of any, any of the digital machines. Yeah, something about 1980s and 90s uh, uh, D to A converters that they're not that great sounding. So we like to keep in the digital realm as much as possible mm, just right. to keep the sound as pure. It's funny. I just had a conversation with someone about 3348s and we we're talking about how great everyone thought they sounded at the time and was just our ears were used to it and what would happen if we listened to it today. But you know because you've done that. <laughs> So I guess they don't sound that good. They, they, they do a thing, but that's the, that's the, the thing about, well, the HRs, the HRs actually have a decent sound to them. They're the ones with the, uh, the high resolution converters, uh, the original 16 bit converters, uh, not so much. They, they did not sound that great. Um, and still don't, uh, the HRs, they, they, they're respectable. They sound respectable. Uh, but there's a lot of better converters out there than the house converters on an HR. When I was at your studio last week, I was amazed at the wide range of gear that was there and working gear on top of it. I mean, you go to a lot of places and, and you'll see the equivalent of a museum worth of stuff, but it doesn't all work really well. But I know yours does because it has to. That's the hard part is um, it's taken me uh, over five years to collect all these different machines. And, you know, I've had, I've had opportunity to buy machines, um, that were, you know, didn't work or were kind of on their last legs or just beat to hell that were like ex rental machines. And as much as you want to, as much as you want to buy them, you have to just pass on them. Um, especially in my line of work, you have to find the cream of the crop that you can. I mean, some machines, it's just, it is what it is. And you have to make sure that it works. You have to have a good tech available, which 
for the Sonys and the Mitsubishis. Um, it's, I don't know of anybody around that works on those machines anymore. And that's the scary part. Uh, all the parts are obsolete. So we try and do a Noah's Ark system where we have two of every machine, um, in working condition, or at least a parts machine. If we can't find another working machine, um, at least we can swap out different parts and, and get it up and running again. Um, but that's, that's crucial in, in my line of work. Well, there's a lot of people listening to this, and now's probably a good time if you're looking for certain machines to mention what you're looking for, because you never know what'll pop up. So, what is it that you need? Right on. Oh, oh, that's a good question. We we have a, a pretty full complement. Um, uh, I one machine that I'm looking for is an Akai, uh, the 12 track Akai which had these uh, kind of tape cartridges that would record 12 tracks that had a little mixing board on it. I remember that. Um, I, I know the transport. Yeah, the transports on those uh, didn't, they didn't hold up well over time. So it's hard to find a working example of that. Um, I'm always on the lookout for another Mitsubishi X80 or an X86. Uh, the X80, there was less than 200 of them ever made. And, uh, I, I have one of them that's in great condition, but I, I still have to find a spare for it. And I also, I have uh, an X86 HS and an X86, uh, normal and, uh, which, uh, some of the parts are interchangeable, but it'd be nice to have, to have another, uh, X86 HS. So if anybody out there has one, let me know and get a hold of me. You know, that begs the question then, are there projects that you've gotten in that you couldn't actually archive because you couldn't work on because the machine wasn't available. Uh, yeah, there's been a couple of them. Uh, one of them is the three M 32 track digital machine, which was the first digital multi-track machine that was ever made. Um, and those things were sketchy even when they were new. Um, cause it was on the bleeding edge of digital technology. Um, and there's not a lot of those machines survived. I, I know of about uh, two or three of them that, that actually exist in the U.S. So it's a very rare machine, and to find one that actually works is even rarer. Uh, so I've had a, a few tapes that they thought were Mitsubishi 32-track 1-inch, but they were actually 3M. Hmm. And the two, the two machines are not compatible with each other at all. Um, and I've also been asked for a four track one inch for some, uh, European tapes and, uh, and those machines are extremely rare. So I was actually, I, I have to save up my money <clears throat> and get a custom ATR done at some point with, uh, with a custom one inch tape path with a four track and two track head. So that's, that's in the future. Um, but we don't get enough calls right now to, to, to justify the cost of it. Do you get any like analog twelve track projects in? Yeah, I've I've I had one a uh, uh, couple months ago, um, and uh, the way to do that um, it was a one inch twelve track, and uh, I have a complete one inch tape path for our eight twenty seven, um, and so I put the one inch tape path on the eight twenty seven and use the twenty four track heads. And the the heads and the head gap align perfectly with the tape, mm. and so that that was the way we transferred it. That's awesome. I mean, there weren't that many machines anyway. That I think it was a Scully, as I recall. And it was a Scully, yeah, yeah. And there weren't that many. 
to begin with, but there were a few pretty good projects on that, as I recall. So it, it's cool. It's cool that you can do that. Yeah, the the the, the project that we were doing was actually uh, some tapes from the Jimi Hendrix estate. Ah, okay. He had a 12-track Scully and recorded a lot of 12-track Scully. So, yeah, it was, I, I, I asked a few that were involved with it. Okay. What is, since you guys don't have a Scully, what do you usually do? And, and they said that the, the a 27, 24 track head aligns perfectly as long as you have the one inch tape path, which luckily we do, uh, because we also have a, uh, one inch, eight track head and a custom made one inch 16 track head that John French or a JRF magnetics made for us. Um, so, and he got us the one inch tape path from audio house in, in Switzerland. And, uh, yeah, it, everything worked amazed that everything lined up as well as it did. How about a 40 track Stevens? Oh, that's, that's another extremely rare bird. I, I've never come across a real tape that was done on a 40 track Stevens. And I'm not sure how we would handle that one. That's, that's a good question. Yeah. But like I said, I've yet to come across a 40 track Stevens tape. I mean, the big ones there, Roy Thomas Baker was big for that. So I think the cars and Queen were all done on that machine, or at least the cars were. I, I don't know about Queen, but when I think of that machine, that's what comes to mind, Roy Thomas Baker. Wow. Yeah, I, I've, I've never even seen a 40-track Stevens out in the wild. So I, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even know where to look for one. I remember going into Cherokee, uh, I was in one of the rooms, and Roy was in another one, and he had his machine. Actually, he had two of them. And I can remember seeing. Oh wow! Yeah, there's two of them. One was a backup, I think, because they were pretty flaky. Well, Stevens machines in general were were flaky way back when. Everybody loved the sound of them, but the transports were were really touchy. So you can never be sure what was going to happen. Yeah, didn't they use the Isoloop transport from the MCIs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they did. Well, okay. So what's interesting here is the fact that archiving is a, a real business now. I would say if you went back 10 years, that might not have been the case. I know people were doing it back then and they were thinking about it, but there was less of an emphasis on it. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you're, you're completely right. Um, when, when I started, uh, which was, it's coming up on 10 years. It was, it, I, like I said, I didn't even know it existed. And there were, there were just a few, there's just a few people in town that are doing it. Um, and it's, it's grown a little bit over the past, maybe two or three years, um, to, to where there's, there's more places popping up here and there. And it's, it's hopefully becoming more standardized as far as the practices and how people, you know, treat the tapes and, and, and just, you know, how they do the metadata for it and, and everything else that, that goes along with archiving, because that. That was an issue that, uh, that I saw, like going to, going to other places, going to other facilities, you know, it's, it's one of these things where you, you have to handle the tape properly. You have to have people that know what they're doing. Um, and it's not something that just anybody can do. And there's a real art to it as, as well as a science. And so as long as people are keeping up with the standard and, and follow good measures as far as handling, because they're historical objects that whether people it's, it's a pop culture thing or um, people need to need to realize that what they're handling is a historical object. Like I'm not going to start writing on a Jimi Hendrix tape box. Hmm. 
You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna add my own notes to something or, you know, I treat it like it, like I would like the Mona Lisa, Mm. even, even albums that aren't my favorite album. There's somebody else's favorite album and you have to treat them with respect and, and with a lot of care. And so that's, you know, um, as long as that standard is maintained, then, uh, then I think people are going to do good with archiving. Obviously, you can see the need for it when it comes to analog tape or even digital tape for them and digital tape, I should say. Yes. But now we're getting into the realm of digital archiving where there's digital projects. Now, again, we went through that period with ADATs and, and with. I'm still going through that period of ADATs and D88s and DATs and. Uh... Yeah, but then we get beyond that and now we're talking digital files in DAWs. Are people doing archiving for that i'm i know that at the record labels they're doing it uh they're making uh, when they get handed a uh, a hard drive they make sure that all the plugins are rent well they at least a, a few of the labels i know of they make sure that the plugins are rendered and that the sessions are consolidated and that every that all the assets are within the hard drive so um at, on the label level as far as i know that is being done from an individual artist or uh, like a, an estate, um, I'm not sure. And that's a whole nother can of worms is, uh, is the, the digital archiving of, of DAW sessions because you need uh, technology has, mo- has moved so fast over the past few years that you would have to get every version of every DAW with every plugin. And then you have to have multiple computer systems with multiple OSs to run them. It, it just, it becomes a, a hornet's nest at a certain point. Um, so that's why we've never gotten into it. We, we've just stayed uh, strictly tape-based because it's hard enough keeping old tape machines alive um, and chasing the, uh, you know, past computer technology is a whole nother issue. Mm. I can just imagine SCSI drives and jazz drives and things like that. Jeez, just trying to find Bernoulli drives. I have, I've been given uh, uh, from clients SCSI drives, DLTs, jazz drives, you name, and, and I've actually had to go out and, and I had to find a Mac G4 <laughs> with OS 9.2.2 with an Addo SCSI card and uh and retrospect 5.0 oh, man. and retrieve all all this information in a glyph uh scuzzy bay the, the whole thing and uh yeah it was uh, i just wanted to tear my hair out it, but we we got the information off the drives luckily but it's uh it's crazy how how far back you have to go and how how much you have to dig deep into okay what was they doing 20 years ago and uh, how do you work this operating system? And, oh, that's right. I need retrospect to build a catalog for this before I can take it off the SCSI and, or off the DLT. And yeah, it's, um, yeah, that's, that's a road. It's a road I don't travel down too often and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for it, <laughs> so, but I have done it in the past. How long does it take you to do a project, Dan? Um, it depends. Uh, I've had projects that were several hundred reels. And it's taken me, you know, like a month or two to get through them. Um, I get projects that are comp side A side B, which are just two reels of half inch. And that takes me um, maybe like eight hours uh, or less to do that. So it, it really depends. And it also depends on the tape condition too. Uh, I've gotten tapes where they're covered in mold. All the splices are falling apart. 
and it's just it's it's a real mess and it's taken me a few days to actually clean the tape to make it playable so it's 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 always a moving target um and that's kind of what i love about archiving too is that it's not the same thing it's not a repetitive okay i'm doing this and this you know everything every day is the same every time i get a new project there's some something different there's some new hurdle there's some challenge there's something i learned from it and uh and it's i i enjoy that aspect of it was there one particular project that's the most difficult in your mind oh um there was one um oh god it was uh it was an album that was done in 97 that i actually worked on over at capital believe it or not so that's always where you're getting getting stuff that you've worked on in the past wow yeah. um and it was on these 14 inch reels of GP nine that were in the uh, shipping containers. Those, uh, those hard plastic boxes with like the airlock seal on them. Oh yeah. It would, which are not good for tape storage, uh, believe it or not. So a tape, it's, it's an organic material. It starts breaking down and it, it emits a gas. And if the gas isn't allowed to escape, then it kind of marinates in its own juices and kind of exponentially breaks the tape down. So um, I had to bake those tapes uh, probably, I think, for four weeks. Those tapes were in the oven. Wow. And never really, they never really got to a good enough state to where I was able to play the whole reel through. So I had to take, and these are the giant 14-inch reels, I had to take maybe 30 seconds to a minute and capture it and then stop the, stop the machine, stop the computer, clean the head, because they were completely filled by that time, rewind it about 50 seconds, do another 30 seconds to a minute, rewind, clean the heads, rewind it to another 30 and on and on until I got all the reels done. And it took forever. And then I had to edit all those sections together in pro tools. Oh man. And I, I forget how long that session took me. And it was maybe like six reels of GP nine, but it took me weeks just to get it done. So that was probably one of the worst ones I've seen. In the whole process, too, what's the most fun? Like I said, it's all kind of except for the except for the one GP9 project. Um, they're all kind of fun. Um, like I said, I learn something new on each one, and I get to hear stuff that people haven't heard in in forty, fifty years. I mean, that's you know, it's it's a great job. Like I actually, I love what I do for a living. So it's it's always fun coming in and just putting up a reel of tape and. And just hearing what's on it. I mean, somebody, somebody poured their heart and soul and a lot of money into making these things. And it's, it's just, it's a privilege just to, just to be able to be the guy that, you know, to, that's able to bring it back from the, from almost certain death and to listen to this stuff. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a great privilege. So all of them are fun, except for that one tape, that one, <laughs> that one GP9 thing, but you know. That's so cool, Dan. Okay. Last question. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you received from somebody or you learned along the way? Ooh, um, I would have to say I, it's something I learned from my grandfather when I was, when I was young, he kept, he always told me this and he, he used to tell me that your signature, your signature is the most valuable thing you own and anything that requires your signature you need to give it special attention and kind of think about what you're doing before you sign anything and i I think that's a global truth i every time i i sign a check every time i you know sign a contract for something um 
it's it's always held true like i have to i take a beat and i kind of think about what i'm doing and then sign my name that's awesome dan it's so true because you're right i think people take that for granted and they probably shouldn't yeah my, my grandfather is probably one of the smartest people i i'd ever met and uh he would always give me like little pieces of, of advice like that and I'll, I'll be damned if it wasn't true every everything he's, he's ever told me you can find out more about Dan and United Archiving by going to unitedrecordingstudios.com forward slash archiving. That's unitedrecordingstudios, one word, dot com forward slash archiving. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or Go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.